Hello and thank you for listening to episode 193 of 60 Minutes With. I'm Dave and this is another of our interview shows. And you know by now I love doing these interview shows. These are the shows where I get to talk to people whose work I love and none more so than Adam Rifkin. Uh, a guy whose work I've loved for, I, I looked online, it's like getting close to 30 years now I've been a fan of his, both as a writer and as a director. And the chance to get to chat to him about three of my favourite films of his is just unbelievable. And I mentioned this in the interview, you've probably already seen the films that I'm going to chat with him when you go in. Why Psycho Cop Returns? Of all the films that you could pick from Adam Rifkin and you pick Psycho Cop Returns. Well, that is explained in this interview. And what it is explained as well, I do uh, I do ask Adam if he will return in the in the new year sometime and chat about three more of my favourite films of his. Because there's a lot of favourite films of his. If you're not aware, for some bizarre reason, you're not aware of Adam's work, please click on IMDb and have a look at the films that he's directed. Look at the films that he's written too. I'm sure you'll go, oh my God, I didn't know that he wrote that. So you don't want to listen to me prattling on, as always. You come here to listen to the guests. Uh, and what a great guest Adam was when I chatted to him. He was very generous with his time, very generous with his stories. And I had a whale of a time just sitting back and listening to him. And I cannot wait for him to come back on the show at some point in the future too. So I'm going to play the trailer for Psycho Cop Returns, just in case you're not familiar with it. And even though you can't see the visuals, it will give you a little idea of what this film is like. I love it. I really love it. Larry and Brian thought they'd planned the perfect bachelor party. They took care of the booze. They took care of the boss. Yes! They took care of the girls. Women, 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 women! They took care of the entertainment. We're here to party! They even took care of the night watchman. The only thing they didn't take care of was him. You boys wouldn't be planning anything illegal. Now they've got an uninvited guest. They're just having some fun, fun, fun. Until someone loses an eye. He's a cop. He shoots at people for a living. Chances are he's a little bit strange. <laughs> Psycho Cop 2. You know, I'm beginning to suspect foreplay. Uh, it's nobody looks like you're drunk and disorderly. Well, hello there, officer. You're under arrest. You have the right to remain dead. There's something really wrong. Anything you say can and will be considered extremely strange because you're dead. You have the right to an attorney. Why aren't they dressed? They're dressed. They're just dressed scantily. So maybe I should just let you go with a warning. Let's get the hell out of here. Everything okay up here? Suspect is blonde and considered extremely stupid. You understand these rights? Miles David Dougal as the hapless yuppie nerd. Roderick Darren as the life of the party. 1993 penthouse pet of the year julie strain as the bombshell in the keen leather chaps barbara alexander as ace accountant sharon wells and bobby ray shaper as mr law enforcement himself police officer joe vickers at your service whatever you do here's joey <laughs> don't call 911 just run. I hate to kick a man when he's dead. They just don't put up much of a fight. Psycho Cop 2. First things first, Adam, thank you so much for joining me on the show today. I've been looking forward to this for, for quite a long time now. Oh, well, thank you. Happy to be here. Uh, I think the, the most difficult thing for me was I knew I wanted to talk about three of my favourite films of yours. It, it was picking them was really was really difficult. There's so you've done so many good films. And I think already I'm going to have, have to ask you to come back sometime next year for, for, <laughs> okay. for three more of my favourite films. Sure. Well, thanks. I appreciate it. Uh, but I'm going to go through them chronologically, and I'm going to begin with one that I think people might not have expected me to pick 
um, <laughs> for, for a number of reasons. 1993 Psycho Cop returns. Uh, and for people that don't know as well, they could think, well, you, know, you're, you said you were going to interview Adam Rifkin, and yet this is a film by Riff Coogan. Uh, so I, I know the story of this, but please, for the listeners, if you want to give uh, just a quick story about Riff Coogan. Sure. Well, Riff Coogan is my grindhouse nom de plume. And uh, when I was younger, I just thought it was a fun idea to create an alter ego uh, and to have that alter ego direct all the low-budget exploitation movies that I thought would be fun to make, mm -hmm. but I didn't necessarily think would help me in my pursuits of a legitimate Hollywood career. Um, I love B-movies. I've always loved B-movies. As you know, I love all movies. I love you know, a serious art films and I love pure trash. Uh, I just think movies, uh, the experience of movies is, are, they're fun, whether they're, you know, good movies or bad movies, there's something fun to be found in, in all kinds of movies. And so I just always thought it would be fun to make grindhouse movies. Uh, so I created this alter ego riff was the nickname I had as a kid because of my last name being Rifkin, mm -hmm. and Coogan, I took from the movie Coogan's Bluff, <laughs> which is one of my favorite Clint Eastwood films. That's a great And so film. I put those, yeah, and I put those two things together and created Riff Coogan, and the first Riff Coogan movie I made was called The Invisible Maniac. Great film. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Uh, and that was a lot of fun to make. And so then the opportunity came up. You know, I'll, I'll say this, too. You know, um, very early on, somebody had said to me that when you're a director, you don't really get an opportunity to practice. You just get thrown into the fire with each movie. And, I, and, and that really struck me. And so these two Riff Coogan movies that I made were really kind of practice runs for two quote-unquote real movies that I made I made uh, the invisible maniac as sort of a way to practice my directing chops just prior to going into a film that I was very passionate about making called the dark backward mm -hmm. um, and the dark backward had already been greenlit uh, and I was able to sneak in um, uh, uh, the invisible maniac before that and it really helped me be a better filmmaker when I got a chance to make the dark backward and the same thing happened with um, Psycho Cop Returns. I was going to make a movie called The Chase with Charlie Sheen, which was going to be my first movie where I got to do action. I'd never done action before. Yeah. And, you know, it's not a big movie. It's a small car crash movie. It was, you know, but I wanted to do the best I could with, uh, you know, with the resources that I had available. So I wanted to do a little movie beforehand just to practice a little bit of action. Um, and so I got to do Psycho Cop Returns before that as a practice run. We didn't get to do car chases, but we got to do foot chases, which were pretty <laughs> similar in how you shoot, you know. Uh, so that really helped me with that as well. So both of those things were – both of those movies really helped me um, get some get some, you know, t time behind the camera before I went to do these other movies. But Psycho Cop 2, you know, in the in – the, um, grand tradition of grindhouse fair you know we shot the movie in a week we had no <laughs> money and it was just run and gun and 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 i'll tell you when the stakes are low right <laughs> because the you know nobody's expecting much from you know titles like the invisible maniac or psycho cop 2 um it's freeing because yeah. uh, when you when you when you feel your whole career is on the line, you know, when I was making the dark backward, I mean, this was my passion project. I wanted it to be good so badly. You know, it, it, it's it's a little more stressful. But when you're making Psycho Cop Returns, um, <laughs> it if things go wrong, it's it, it, it's funnier than it is horrifying. You know, we just had we just when when somebody didn't know their lines or when the set would collapse or when we didn't have time to get all the coverage, it was just all part of the fun of making low budget movies, you know, and we just figured out how to make it work regardless. And, and I learned a lot. I learned more making Riff Coogan movies than I learned making any other kind of movie. Well, that must've been so good to have that freedom. Like you say, just to go out there and, you know, not have that pressure on you like you do with the bigger movies. It is freeing. And it, it, uh, 
And I think that's why they were so educational for me as a filmmaker, because you, you're not afraid to try things that you otherwise, you know, if you have no time on a movie that means so much to you, you want to make sure that every decision you make is the right one. Obviously, that's not going to be the case. You're going to make a million mistakes along the way. Mm -hmm. But um, when you're making Psycho Cop Returns, you can try things that if they don't work, it's okay. You know, because you're just making Psycho Cop Returns. I mean, we're not, you know, nobody's taking it too seriously. So that's why I was able to try some things, uh, had you know, some real trial and error on on those movies. And then the things that worked, I could apply to bigger movies. Oh, yeah. And I know you've already mentioned The Dark Backward and The Chase. I mean, they are two films that I would love to talk about in the future. Next time. Definitely, sure, no definitely problem. next time. But like you said, I grew up watching all types of movies. I love all different types of movies. And especially during, you know, the heyday of VHS in the 80s. Horror films from, you know, the likes of First Watch the Omen and things like that. But then sure. I'd love stuff like... Um, sorority babes in the slime ball bowler armor and who doesn't love that exactly it's a, it's a blast. <laughs> that's why psycho cop 2 has always just clicked with me as one of those <laughs> i don't even want to say guilty pleasure because it's just a, a pleasure i'm not guilty about loving it at all thank you thank you it's, so you said you only had a week to make it and it was just in in the one location you, you got this what was it was some an office block was it a used office block was it, it was a it was a office it? building yeah it was an office building and we were given total access to a complete floor on this office building because it was under construction and we and we also had access to the roof and the lobby and the surrounding area and it was um it was a blast <laughs> And we shot 99% of it was shot at night. So, you know, I mean, I like night shoots because the world is asleep and basically just your, your sole focus, everybody involved in the movie is just focused on the job at hand, yeah. no distractions. So if you're shooting a movie in a week, you really need all the focus you can get. I was going to say, what was the hardest part of making the film was you? I'm presuming it was the, the time constraints. Was there anything else? Any sort of obstacles you had to come against while you were making it? Well, you know, every movie is is hard to make in ways you just don't you just don't see coming. Um, I would say uh, the, the time restrictions were definitely one of the big challenges, but also one of the things that made it fun. You know, yeah. um, to me, one of the great joys of making movies is is that problem solving that you have to you're forced to have to do amid all this chaos, this controlled chaos. You're just everybody's just thrown into this bizarre scenario where everybody has an individual skill. Uh, everybody has to sort of pull those skills together uh, to pull off these individual shots that you hope will cut together into some sort of cohesive storyline. And, uh, you know, it, it, it's it's shocking that any movie gets made when you really <laughs> analyze it. And it's, you know, the, this it's separate you know components. But somehow people just. Not every time, obviously, but a lot of times people just pull it all together and it, and, it, and it gels. And we we had a lot of laughs making Psycho Cop 2 because and Invisible Maniac as well, both Riff Cougar movies, because every time things would go, everything, everything goes wrong on every movie. Right. It yeah. always feels like everything's going wrong. Uh, and one of the fun things about making movies is then you 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 roll with those punches and you adapt and suddenly you have to think your way out of a, a hole and you think of a way that out of that hole that you never would have thought of before and maybe it's better than what you had originally planned mm -hmm. and so psycho cop 2 as it was called when we were shooting it was no different you know every day everything that we planned went out the window i mean by the way we didn't even have that much time to plan i mean we shot we we had like a week to plan and a week to shoot you know <laughs> My God. um so i would say yeah the time the time constraints were the biggest challenge but that also made it part of the fun and that also enabled it to be a real education for me because then when I went on to do the chase and we had you know seven weeks or whatever we had to shoot it it was like a walk in the park suddenly you know yeah yeah I take it you'd already seen the original psycho cop then well actually I, I have still never seen the original oh, psycho cop okay. <laughs> <laughs> in fact I made a point to not watch the original psycho cop that's that's how that's how seriously I take the riff Coogan movies when I got hired to direct <laughs> The sequel to Psycho Cop. I didn't even bother watching Psycho Cop, um, but uh, but I knew I knew everything I needed to know. He's a cop and he's a psycho. That's all you need to know. 
I uh, I didn't have time to write it um, because I was working on the script for The Chase, which I told you was going to be the next Adam Rifkin movie I was going to make. So I hired a friend of mine to write uh, Psycho Cop 2 because uh, it needed to be banged out in record time. I mean, he wrote it in a few days. Uh, I hired a buddy of mine named Dan Pobbenmeyer who uh, has gone on to become one of the most successful animators in all of television. He created a show called Phineas and Ferb, which I don't know if that's a big hit in the UK, but that's a monster hit for Disney here in the U S and I mean, it's a multi-billion dollar franchise for Disney. And so, uh, he, he's doing great. A lot of people went on to do great things off of psycho cop too. Nick Vallelonga, who's in the movie, he wrote and produced, uh, Green Book. So there is a two-time Oscar winner in <laughs> Psycho Cop 2. Um, I always use Miles Dougal. He played Brian. He He's my high school uh, pal, and I use him in everything. Um, but yeah, a lot, of, a lot of people went on to do... Uh, Cassie and Elwes, who produced Psycho Cop uh, 2, has been producing nothing but Oscar-nominated films for the past decade and a half. I mean, he produced... Dallas Buyers Club and The Butler and Mudbound and I mean just so many prestige films. It's a lot of fun. Oh yeah, I should think so. What's what's the first thing that jumps to mind when anybody says Psycho Cup Two? What's what's the very first image that you get? To me, it's just having fun with everybody in the middle of the night in this bizarre office building in Burbank. You know, uh, Bobby Ray Schaefer, who also who played Psycho Cup, who went on to have a big role in the office the american version of the office which was great uh he's a great guy and you know what's fun about psycho cop 2 for some reason more than almost any movie i've made everybody is still in touch with each other from that movie i mean when we did uh you know um vinegar syndrome did this beautiful restoration yeah. of psycho cop 2 out of the blue I mean, I just got this call out of nowhere. We want to do uh, a, a special edition Blu-ray. We want to restore it back to its original director's cut because all the all the gore got cut out when it was released originally. Mm -hmm. um, and everybody was happy to be a part of the making. Of the, you know, they made a documentary about the making of it. Everybody was happy to participate. Everybody, you know, every, occasionally there have been a couple screenings in L.A. of it, you know, just for some, you know, film societies who like B-movies and stuff. Everybody shows up. Everybody really still likes each other and gets along and is in touch, which is fun, you know. That's really good. It's the Vinegar Syndrome version that I've got on Blu-ray too, and it looks great. It looks great, yeah. I'm so happy with the way that they, they, they did that. Oh, yeah. Well, let's, let's move. I know we've got so much to talk about. I do. I want to move on to Detroit Rock City. It's 1978. Disco's dead! Those jeans are so tight. I can see your uh, It's the last day of school. Yes? This is better than the first time I got to finger a chick, man. And to celebrate... The night is young. Four friends are busting loose and hitting the highway. I'm making it. Oh, man. Give me this pizza. <laughs> no more, no more. It's going to be the most... Repulsive. Ah, oh. <laughs> offensive. I've never heard a girl blow an ass before. Vile. <laughs> and certainly the most momentous. <laughs> Time of their lives. You better have something really sinful for me this time, son. I just lost my virginity in a confessional booth! In Detroit Rock City, they're young, <laughs> dumb, Look at him. He's a moron. and full of... <laughs> I'm sorry. Hey, I'm sure there's more where that came from, right? <laughs> Detroit Rock City. It's a girl walking along the side of the highway. We should pull over and help her out. I mean, they, they make scary movies that start out like that. Hey, but... But they make porno movies that start out like that too, man. Five years ago now, the very first episode uh, of this podcast that I did, I did with Carl Dupree, who wrote Detroit oh, great. Rock City. Yeah. Uh, so this sort of ties the circle in a way. Uh, I've been a Kiss fan since 
ooh, 79. And of course I saw, you know, Attack of the Phantoms, as it was called here in the UK at the cinema. Uh, when it, was, it was released here, I think, in the early 80s when I went to see it. And as much as I love that movie, I think like a lot of KISS fans, we wanted a, a decent KISS film. <laughs> <laughs> and then when Detroit Rock City was announced, everybody was so excited. And again, I love this movie so much. I think it's not just as a love letter to KISS and for KISS fans to enjoy. I think it's a, it's a film that everybody can relate to because we've all been in that situation at some point where you've loved a band so much and you want tickets to see them and you know shit's happened along the way that you can't get it what what was your history of how you got to be involved with detroit rock city and your involvement you know with kiss and you know as a, as a fan say as well sure well i'm, I'm a fan I, I i would not say i've ever been a fanatic hmm. but i've always been a fan and and i am a, in particular a fan of 70s pop culture and kiss is sort of the cornerstone in my mind of you know 70s uh, of of like the most colorful 70s pop culture phenomena you can point to yeah and so i just uh love what they represent and i love the 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 iconography that is associated with them and i i love uh you know their their songs and and uh you know i've just always been a fan yeah um, they're, they're a part of my youth. You know, when I was growing up in the seventies, they were ubiquitous. And so I was, a you know, the, two, two, it's funny, two things that I, you know, Burt Reynolds, which I know we're going to talk about that too. Mm -hmm. Burt Reynolds was my hero in the seventies. Um, when I was growing up cause he was ubiquitous as well. So, I mean, getting to work with kiss and Burt Reynolds in my career have, has been two of my great joys, you know? So anyway, um, I was directing the chase, um, and the assistant editor was Carl Dupre. Now, my editor, Peter Schink, had always been a big Kiss fan as well. And that was something that we would often talk about. And Carl Dupre was also a Kiss fan. And so Carl wrote Detroit Rock City on spec. And for those who don't know what on spec means, it means you just write it on speculation and on speculation that someday you'll sell it. Mm -hmm. You're writing it. You're not being paid to write it. You're just sitting down and writing it yourself. So he wrote. Detroit Rock City on his own and he asked me if I would read it and I said I would be happy to read it and I read it and I thought it was great and he said if it ever gets made you know funded would you direct it and and the first thing I thought was this, this movie ain't ever getting made you know <laughs> Kiss were not together I mean it was written to be set in 1978 the original members of Kiss were you know have you know it's the original lineup in yeah. the movie it was filled with Kiss songs Kiss. I know how much Gene, you know, protected the copyright of the 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 the, the face paint uh, designs and the music. I know he'd be it'd be impossible to get Gene to agree to. Yeah. We'd never be able to afford it, you know. So I politely said yes. If it ever gets funded, of course I'll direct it, thinking that I would never hear about that again. Little did I know that as the years unfolded, Carl had gotten the script to Barry Levine. Barry Levine was Kiss's longtime photographer, took a lot of the shots that would become famous album covers and famous posters of Kiss. Uh, Barry Levine had been working as a music supervisor in films since he had been, you know, after being a photographer and was wanting to make the move into producing. Barry Levine got the script to Gene Simmons. Gene Simmons, unbeknownst to me at the time, had uh, assembled, you know, the original lineup back again, and yeah. were, and were, Kiss were embarking, Kiss was embarking on the reunion tour, and he thought this movie would be a good sort of companion piece sales tool to um, promote the the reunion tour. Yeah, um, and so not only did he jump on as well as a producer. But he attached with his involvement all the Kiss music, the original Kiss lineup, and the Kiss face paint designs, obviously, yeah. which he owns the copyright of, or the copyright to, I should say. Um, they then, as a, as a team, Carl, Barry, and Gene, they then partnered with a third producer, who comes from the finance side of films, a woman named Kathleen Haas. 
And Kathleen Haas, it just so happened at the time, was my girlfriend. Okay. And, and she did not know that I had any history with the script and said to me, you know, we're putting this movie together and we're looking for a director. And I think that it might be something you would appreciate because I know you love the 70s and you love pop culture and you love Kiss. And I said, not only have I already read the script, but I've already agreed to direct it. <laughs> so, yes, I'm, tr I'm true to my word. I'm in. So then we were a complete package, script, producers, director, um, and, and intellectual property being the KISS uh, uh, property. We, went, we walked into New Line Cinema, and we had a meeting with Mike DeLuca. And in the meeting with Mike DeLuca, Tim Sullivan, who worked at New Line at the time, was, in, was a big KISS fan. And uh, the movie was greenlit in the room. And within less than three weeks, I'd say, of that first meeting, we were on a plane to Toronto to start prepping. <laughs> Tim, Tim graduated from being an executive at New Line to being one of the producers of the film as well. And then we all just made the movie in Toronto and had an amazing time. Wow. I mean, we're, we're both very similar in age to each other. Uh, but I think the big difference, of course, is you grew up in America. I grew up here in the UK. And yeah. I, I think especially for... The Joe Public over here in the UK don't realise how huge Kiss were in the seventies. I mean, they were they were massive worldwide, but especially so in America. Massive, massive, just absolutely um, iconic, ubiquitous everywhere you looked for for that the the, the, the era of the seventies. They were everywhere and their songs played constantly on the radio you could not escape them mm -hmm. and also they were extraordinarily controversial because so many um you know mothers and religious groups and 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 people who were a little uptight about that kind of thing were convinced they were satan worshipers and they were infecting the the minds of their and the purity of their children, which yeah. of course Gene and Paul just played up to the hilt because it <laughs> sold more tickets and more records, you know. What were the challenges then making this movie? Of course, when it's set in a certain time period as well. And on top of that, you're gonna have I mean KISS fans are renowned, and I'm one of them, I speak from experience, for just diving so much into the minutiae of everything and and you know, going, well, that's from that year and that's from that year. I'm wanting to know everything and can look at a picture of the band and know what year it is just from the makeup and the little changes that it does. Did that weigh heavy at all on you, knowing that there were, as well as a, the general movie-going audience, you were going to get these fanatical KISS fans coming in to watch it? Well, well, here, here's what's funny about that. We had a number of KISS fanatics on the movie. Hmm. I Like I said, I was a fan, but I was unaware of some of those details, of yeah. course. But I relied on my sort of team of fanatics to help keep it authentic because I wanted it to be completely authentic. So between Tim and Pete, my editor, and uh, Carl, the writer, um, they made sure they were absolutely uh, dogmatic about, uh, you know, that, oh, no, this lunchbox would have been 1979, <laughs> not, not 1978, and this bath towel would uh, not have been, this bath towel was 1981, what's the matter with you, you know, that kind of thing. So uh, they, they, they kept me on the straight and narrow when it came to that. Um, and in terms of the stage design, you know, we, we collaborated with, with the band also. You know, a lot of the, the props in the movie that you see as authentic props of the era, they came right out of Gene Simmons' garage. Yeah. Um, and, the, and the ones we couldn't find, you know, because Gene saves everything, so he had everything. <laughs> But the, the ones we couldn't find, like there was a Kiss bath towel we wanted to use. We put the, this was before the internet was ubiquitous. Yeah. Um, but um, chat rooms existed. And, you know, so we put the, uh, the word out to all the Kiss chat rooms, you know, what we were doing. And a lot of people lent us props out of their private collection. And so the pinball machine came from, I believe, a private collection. Um, the bath towel came from a private collection. A few of the other things that we featured in the movie came from private collections. And you've got, I mean, the cast in this as well is a great cast. I mean, I love everybody that's in it. And I think a lot of people, when you say Edward Furlong, they immediately think of Terminator 2. 
but he'd come off the back of this. He, he did an amazing performance in American History X, another film that I love. Uh, but I, I always think Edward Furlong, Detroit Rock City. He's just perfect in this. <laughs> <laughs> I think so, too. I think he comes off great. And, uh, you know, he was uh, very embedded in um, New Line at the moment because he, he had just done American History X and mm-hmm. Pecker. Both for yeah, a new line, yeah, and so they they you know loved him and they suggested him for the role, and he and I met and we hit it off and I thought he was perfect, so I cast him. In fact, Valerie McCaffrey was the casting director and uh, she had such a perfect feel for what we were going for. The first, it, it's amazing because we saw tons of people for the roles and a lot of them have gone on to be very very famous. I mean. Uh, uh, James Franco auditioned and and um, Heath Ledger auditioned. A bunch of big people auditioned for these roles. Mm-hmm. But she had, within the first few sessions, the three of the cast members walked in the door. She just had a knack for, you know, that who, who would be right and who we would like. Edward Furlong was one of the first meetings. Uh, Jimmy DiBello, who plays Trips, one of the first meetings. And Giuseppe Andrews, who played Lex, one of the first meetings. We had a hard time casting um, Jam. Yeah. Uh, Sam Huntington and so we couldn't find anybody in LA that we thought was perfect for the role and he put himself on tape he was living in Connecticut which is where he's from he put himself on tape and we cast him off his tape and then flew him to Toronto from there but um, yeah I mean she literally I would I would this may be an exaggeration but it's it's pretty close to reality that the first three people who walked into audition were the first three people we cast which <laughs> oh, is wow. Lex uh, Lex, uh, Hawk, and Trip. Wow, it's not often that would happen, I should imagine. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so had you seen, had you seen uh, Kiss Meets the Phantom of the Park then before? I know you said you were a fan, but were you aware of that movie and the reputation that it oh, got? Oh, yes. Yeah. Oh, yes, yes, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> so did, did that affect any way that you filmed this? You must have a little bit of pressure from, from again, the Kiss community thinking, well, we've had one turkey so far. This, How is this one going to be? Well, it, it's a that movie's a pretty low bar, so I knew we, we, we would have to really shit the bed to make a movie worse than that, you know. <laughs> but uh, so I, I wouldn't say that added pressure. That actually kind of was a relief when, yeah. when I realized, okay, this is this is uh, I just have to be better than this, and we're we're in good shape. Yeah. But you said something earlier that is a hundred percent true. When we were going into this movie, all of us, including Gene and Paul and and the rest of the band. We felt that the KISS fans were going to go to see this movie regardless. Yeah. We wanted to make a movie that would be able to be uh, loved by non-KISS fans too. Yeah. So that's why it was important to me to make a movie that it's irrelevant that they love KISS. You don't have to be a KISS fan. You just have to know that when you're a teenager – a band is super important to you or whatever is really important to you when you're a teenager. It, it takes on such a significance in oh, your yeah. teenage mind yeah. that it's life or death. You know, so in our minds, we were making, you know, the the quest for the Holy Grail and our kids were, you know, King Arthur and his knights, you know. And so the t- kiss tickets were the MacGuffin. It was just we you know, you just substitute whatever you might be passionate for in yeah. place of those kiss tickets. And and then you can relate to it, you know. Oh yeah, you can do. You could you could substitute the band for any number of bands, and it would it would work. The whole script would work, and the situations that they find themselves in would work. And like you said, you can completely relate to them as well. Exactly, exactly. And what was it like with the concert? Because of course, you recreated a concert from the time as well. What were the logistics of putting all of that together? That was a tough one. Um, Kiss were in the middle of their reunion tour, and their and it was the biggest tour in the history of touring right at that time i mean that was just a monster success i mean just ginormous and um their schedule was extremely tight and they were only going to have one day off where they could shoot the concert and that day off kept changing because more concert dates would pop up you know uh so at one point they were going to have to shoot it in la so we were going to shoot the concert in la and then that became untenable so then it, it turned out that they were going to be able to shoot it in toronto um so they had one day in and out we had to shoot it you know uh, all very quickly we didn't have the budget 
to hire 10,000 extras, right? Yeah. We had the budget to hire about 500 extras, which is still a lot of people, by the way. You put 500 people in a room, it's a lot of people. Oh, but yeah. when, when you've got a stadium with 500 people in 10,000 seats, it looks like <laughs> nothing, right? Yeah. But, but we put the word out locally that if you want to see a free KISS concert, and also we're going to raffle off all kinds of cool KISS stuff, show up between this time and this time on this day, and you can be in the movie, right? Yeah. And so we started the day off shooting um, just with the 500 extras that we had paid, and we did the shots with the kids in the middle of the crowd and whip pans from them to the stage and back and everything. And gradually, little by little, the people started to show up. And before we knew it, we had 10,000 people filling every <laughs> seat, which was unbelievable. Um, and, and, I, and we said, we better get the big shots now because who knows how long they're willing to stick around. Yeah. So then we hurry just fast. We jumped up onto the stage and we did all the shots from behind the band where you see the giant crowd. And it's a good thing we did because we had 10,000 people but we had them for about an hour, right? And after they realized they were going to hear the same song a fourth time, they filtered out. And so then, you know, within about 90 minutes, we had 500 people again. Yeah. But we did get the shots, so that was great. And we had, I think we had seven cameras that day. And one of the things we did, we wanted to make sure that in the song, because we only were having the kids see them perform the song Detroit Rock City. But we wanted to make sure within that song that you get a sense of a whole Kiss concert. Yeah. Because in a Kiss concert, as you know, you know, some songs they have big pyro effects, and then some song, you know, another song he spits blood, and another song Ace's guitar smokes, and then mm -hmm. another song there's another special effect. So we wanted to cram all of that into just the one song. Um, and uh, so we, before the movie, we scheduled out every every line in the song we said okay here's going to be a pyro hit here's going to be where he spits blood here's where the i mean everything was planned um and uh, <laughs> it was it was funny because ace freely uh during the shoot he would say hey wait a minute my guitar doesn't smoke during this song and gene would have to say no ace just we're doing the whole concert <laughs> in one song oh, okay <laughs> but you know the, the the four of them were not like a rock and roll band when you when we were working with them together, they were more like the Marx Brothers. I mean, they were just like a bunch of corny old Jews making you know cracking jokes. It was hilarious. Do you ever keep anything from the movies that you make? And if you do, did you keep anything from this one? Well, I kept a lot of stuff, uh, and it just so happens. I wish that uh, the timing was different here. I actually just, I mean, it had been sitting in my storage for twenty years. I thought, you know, this stuff should be being enjoyed by somebody, uh, uh, you know, instead of just sitting in darkness. So I partnered with um, uh, Backstage Auctions. We just had a massive KISS auction. Uh, and a big part of the auction was my, and, and Tim Sullivan also, our collection of stuff from the movie. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. So it was fun to see, uh, see that stuff get rehomed. Oh, I should think so. What was it like watching it for the first time with a, on the big screen with, uh, with an audience? Well, the first time I watched it on a big screen with an audience was our test screening. Yeah. And it was a, it went, it was a surreal experience because you never know what's going to happen mm. at a test screening. Um, so we put in to the, our rough cut every song we had on our wish list, right? Because in addition to Kiss songs, we just put tons of songs from the era yeah. all throughout the movie. But we knew that we couldn't afford 99% of them. You know, we could afford the Kiss songs, but we couldn't afford all these other hits, cheap trick songs and ACDC songs and the Ramones. I mean, just so many hit songs, you know. Um, but the test screening went so unbelievably well and the movie scored so high that Bob Shea, who was the chairman of New Line at the time, said to his, uh, um, his people, he said, just pay for all the songs. <laughs> so our music budget went from half a million dollars, which sounds like a lot, but it's not. It went from half a million dollars to two and a half million dollars in one minute. Oh and they just God. paid for all the songs. Yeah. Wow. It is amazing though, what a difference the music can make in a film. Oh my God, it's, it's night and day. Yeah, it really is. Yeah. Well, I, I want to move on. Um, I've got to talk, because this is one I've really been looking forward to chatting with you. The Last Movie Star. 
got to show you this. What do you think? Well, you, you're being honored. He will be presented with a Lifetime Achievement Award. So what? You told him I was his 24-7 driving slave for the entire weekend. Look who the previous winners are. Robert De Niro, Jack Nicholson, and Clint Eastwood. Oh, what? Hi. Mr. Edwards. Yeah. You should see this rat hole. You're there already. Just enjoy it. What the hell is this? This is the festival. Welcome to Nashville. Oh, my gosh. Mr. Edwards, I can't tell you how excited we are to have you here. How are you? Thank you for coming to the film festival. Let's get you over to the red carpet. Why the hell are you even here? Because Clint and Jack and Bobby Darrell are one. You are the only one stupid enough to show up. There are things I've done. Where's Vic? He left. Vic! Sloshed. Yell bang. Bang. Oh, oh my God! I'm tired of feeling like a has-been. The number one box office star for five years in a row. Six. Six, I'm sorry. <laughs> take the next exit. Where are you guys? <laughs> He's on some weird memory tour or something. My God, here you are. I can't believe this. <laughs> Is it true that you doubled Burt Lancaster? I did double somebody on that picture. I had to fall off a horse in a dress. <laughs> That's why you took to An audience will forgive a shitty act too if you can wow them in act three. The Hollywood Critics Association awarded you Best Newcomer of the Year. That's the only time I ever agreed with a critic. <laughs> love to talk about that oh my word now like i said you know we're very similar in age me too i grew up watching burt reynolds movies my dad used to take me to the cinema to watch his films as, you know as well Got great great memories of that i think the best compliment that i can give the last movie star is i'm 54 and i think and we talked about this earlier you know when you said about teenage years and everything means so much to you yeah. i think you do sort of accumulate sort of a, the majority of your favorite films and your favorite albums during those like formative years and it takes a hell of a lot for something to beat them out because you've you know at this point of my life i've grown up with them you know yeah you know, all these movies that i've grown up and you know mean so much to me the last movie star i them is now in my all-time top five films i love wow, it so, thank you so much i love it so so much thank um, you it's got you know i've, I've watched i think I watched it three times the first time I got it, and like twice wow. in one day, once the next day. Um, Thank you. And I know you said, I mean, you're a huge Burt Reynolds fan, and the way that this came about is absolutely incredible. And please, for the listeners that are listening to this that don't know, you know the story of how this came together, because it is, it's, it's wonderful the way it came together. Thank you. Thank you so much for the kind words. Uh, it means a very, means so much to me. Thank you very much. Um, so, okay, so as I was saying, when I grew up in the 70s, Burt Reynolds was the biggest movie star in the world. Mm -hmm. And I can't, for people who are a little bit younger who didn't grow up during the time when Burt Reynolds was the biggest movie star in the world, I can't describe accurately what that means. Because if you think of giant movie stars today, you think of The Rock, you think of Brad Pitt, you think of you know whoever the biggest movie star is you can think of. Burt Reynolds was bigger at that time. He was he was he was the kind of famous that doesn't exist anymore, you know? Yeah. And I loved him when I was growing up. He was so funny and so self-deprecating and so approachable. And he was unpretentious, which was so rare from somebody so famous. And, you know, I was he not only was he a giant movie star, but he was just a giant part of the culture. He was on talk shows and he was on game shows and he was just everywhere and and his movies were massive hits and anyway i loved him yeah. and and i always thought even when i was younger i always thought that he didn't get his fair due as an actor he was beloved as a movie star but he didn't get taken seriously like you know al pacino did yeah but he was just as good an actor he just did different kinds of movies but you look at a you look at any burt reynolds movie whether it's one of his best, like Deliverance, or one of his not-so-best, like Stroke Race. <laughs> he, he never delivers a false performance, ever. Never for one moment. He's always so good that he made it look easy, and people just thought, oh, he's just being Burt Reynolds in front of a camera. Not so. He's a, very, he's a trained actor. He trained at the Actors Studio in New York. His, his scene partners were um, 
Gene Hackman and and uh, Rip Torn. I mean, he was truly a trained actor. So anyway, as I was uh, going along my travels and making my films, I thought to myself throughout my career, you know, I just love Burt Reynolds so much. I I wish people would utilize him more. And I loved Boogie Nights. Obviously, he was a, he was revelatory in Boogie Nights, and mm-hmm. I thought that was going to be the movie that you know brought him back. And it did for five minutes, but then suddenly. It didn't again. And then now 20 years have gone by since Boogie Nights. And, yeah. and I thought to myself, you know, Bert is basically re- retired and he's living in Florida and he's alone and nobody's thinking about him. I mean, the fact that he wasn't in one of the Expendables movies to me was a crime, oh, you know, exactly. Yeah. He should have been in one of those movies, you know. Yeah. So I thought to myself, why is nobody re- remembering Burt Reynolds? I said, Burt Reynolds, I guarantee you he's still got it. He's Burt Reynolds. There's no way he doesn't still got it. So I'm going to write a movie for Burt Reynolds because I don't want people to only remember how good he is when they see a montage of him after it's too late when they do a posthumous montage. I I, I want people to remember how great Burt Reynolds is now while he's around. Mm -hmm. So I rolled the dice and I wrote The Last Movie Star. And for those who don't know what it's about, just briefly, it's about an old man who used to be a huge movie star and now has to face the facts that his glory days are – Far, far behind him and the events of the movie force him to um confront the mistakes of his past and and you know find some sort of way to forgive himself and find redemption yeah and uh and i thought to myself yeah i'm just gonna write it i'm just gonna write it and i'm just gonna send it to him so i did and some people asked me well why don't you just contact him first and see if he'd even be open to starring in a movie anymore i said no because the best case scenario is he's gonna say thank you. I'd love to consider it. Let me read the script when it's done. So I'll just write the script now. I'll just skip that, that part of the story. Hmm. So I wrote the script and I didn't know his manager, but I submitted it to his manager and I said, look, I wrote this movie for Bert and I told him why. And I said, um, I don't know what he's up to these days, but I think that he, he's due for his comeback and uh, please submit the script to him and tell him two things. One, I don't have the money to make it yet, just to make it sound very appealing <laughs> to him. Uh, and two, if he doesn't want to do it, I'm not going to make it at all. I only wrote it for Bert, and yeah. I meant that. Yeah. And uh, anybody who's seen the movie, you can see there's no, there's no way nobody else could have, could have played it. So he said, look, I'll send it to him, but don't get your hopes up because Bert hasn't starred in a movie in well over 20 years. And I don't think he necessarily even wants to, but I'll send it to him. Anyway, the next day, I get a call on my cell phone, and I answered it. And he said, I'm looking for Adam Rifkin. And I immediately recognized <laughs> his voice. It was, it was Burt Reynolds. And I will tell you, you know, I've met famous people throughout my time here making movies in Hollywood and it's fun and it's neat. And sometimes you get a little bit, you know, impressed with certain people, but I've never truly been starstruck like I was in that moment that just knocked me over when I recognized Burt Reynolds voice on the other end of the phone. I couldn't believe it. I mean, suddenly I was 11 years old again, dreaming of Burt Reynolds rescuing me from social studies class, (laughs) you know, uh, and taking me, uh, in his Trans Am and us driving off and all the other kids being jealous. How does Adam know Burt Reynolds, you know? Uh, so anyway, he said, I read your script and, um, he said, I, he really enjoyed it. And he said, uh, he's flattered that I wrote the movie for him. And, and he said, it deals with things that are kind of tough for me to face. And he said, it would require me to have to dig deep into some areas that would be very uncomfortable for me. And as he's talking, I'm thinking to myself, he's going to pass. But how cool is it that Burt Reynolds called me personally to pass? It was worth writing for that alone. And as I'm thinking these things, I almost missed him saying, so so I'm in, I'll do it. (laughs) (laughs) Because he said, if you had sent this to me 10 years earlier, I I couldn't have faced it. But he said, now at this age, I'm in, I have to do it. So, I, so literally, I was like, "Well, I understand, Bert. No, no hard feelings." I wait, wait a minute. What? <laughs> you, you, you said yes. So he was in, and I was over the moon. And I thought naively, and you'd think after doing this for as long as I've been doing it, that I might be a little less naive at this point. But I, <laughs> I, I, I guess I'm not. I thought to myself, "Okay, Bert Reynolds in this role at this age, I'm going to get the money like that. I mean, it's going to be so easy to get this movie funded." 
Yeah. And I was wrong again, as I often am. So uh, it turned out it took us seven plus years to get the money together to make the movie. Every time the money would come through, it would fall apart and it would come through again. It would fall apart. And every time I had to call Bert and I had to tell him that it fell through and I always expected him to say, well, kid, we gave it our best shot. But, uh, you know, oh, well, but nope, he always instead, he always said, don't worry, I'm not going anywhere. When you find the money, just tell me where to be and I'll show up. You know, you'll find it. I, I have faith. And he was true to his word. And when we finally found the money, he he did exactly that. Yeah. And he was so great. And in a way, I'll say this. Those seven years of getting to know each other really well made it made working together finally so much better because we he trusted me so much by the time we actually made the movie. And yeah, we, we yeah. were so fond of each other by that point, you know? Yeah. I mean, you said something really interesting when you answered the phone and you immediately turned into that 11-year-old kid again. I mean, I can completely relate to that. It's like, you know, so with going back to Kiss, you know, I've been a fan since I was 14. I've just seen them on the sure. end of the road tour. Every time I see them, I revert back to that 14-year-old. Sure, you know, exactly. It's, it's amazing how bands, actors, you know, different things can take you back to, you know, back to your, to your youth. And was it that childlike enthusiasm that helped with the tenacity to keep this project going that you really wanted to make it without question because it was something bigger than just wanting to get the next movie made it was it was it was a mission it was my it was my youth you know it was it was what meant something to me when i was young and 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 it, it, it's it was a re, it was like a reclaiming of my youth. And by the way, I felt similarly with Detroit Rock City working with Kiss. You know what I mean? It was mm-hmm. you know yeah. when I was working with them, I felt like a teenager again too. And recreating the 1970s for that movie, uh, you know, we'd walk into the sets and it, I, I was a kid again. You know, that convenience store had all period products on the shelves, and that basement where they were rehearsing that that was like walking back in time. You know, so working with Burt Reynolds hanging with Burt Reynolds, seeing Burt Reynolds through the viewfinder of the camera, I I was literally living my lifelong dream. Yeah. Because I wanted to make movies since I was five years old. You know, when I was 10 years old loving Burt Reynolds, I wanted to make movies with Burt Reynolds. <laughs> so the fact that I made a movie with Burt Reynolds was truly my my lifelong dream come true. That, I mean, that is so amazing for it, you know, for it to be a dream like that. I mean, characters in movies, they go through this whole character arc. What was it like on reflection for you now going through this arc of a fan of Bert and then, like you said, the seven years and then your friends? I mean, I, I can't even begin to wrap my head around what that must have been like. I still can't get my head around it. I have to be <laughs> honest with you. I mean, there there were so many times throughout the process of making the film where I had to pinch myself. I just, I can't believe this is real. You know, now, now I know this wouldn't be the case if you didn't necessarily grow up with Burt Reynolds, you yeah. know? Oh yeah, of course. He, yeah. He's just, it's just an old guy who was in movies back way back when, you know, okay, I get it. And that's fair. But for me, you know, when I think about the global superstar that was Burt Reynolds and, and like, I remember specifically there was one day where uh, we were having a production meeting and they said, okay, we just got word that Bert has gotten on the plane. He's on his way to Knoxville right now. He's in the air. And everybody was just like, okay, good. They were just sort of keeping appraised of his movements because he was uh, due to arrive that day. And I just thought to myself, holy shit. <laughs> Bert Reynolds is on a plane because of me on his way here to make – I can't believe it, you know. And, and what's interesting about working with Bert too, people – you know, unlike – say Clint Eastwood, who everybody still knows who Clint Eastwood is. You know okay. what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Everybody, no matter what your age. Um, but Bert, you know, he was the biggest movie star in the world. And part of the reason that I wanted to make this movie is he had some very public ups and downs. And that's why Bert has not been in the limelight for so many years, you know. And so you could see the demarcation uh, with the people of various ages. You know, anybody over the age of 30-ish, 35-ish, everybody above that age were insane when they got a chance to see Burt Reynolds, meet Burt Reynolds, know Burt Reynolds was in town. Yeah. And everybody younger than that, well, maybe they'd heard of him. Maybe they've, you know, maybe he, you know, I heard my dad liked him, you know, <laughs> uh, or, you know, a lot of people just didn't know who he was at all. You know, I, I have, you know, for the movie, we had Burt 
shirts made of Bert's face, big Bert's face on, on the shirt. Yeah. We used it in the movie and then everybody on the crew got one and we all wear them. And, uh, you know, a lot of people <laughs> see that shirt and go, Bert's the man, the bandit, you know, they get so, so excited. And then I've had other younger people say, is that El Chapo? You know, it's just very oh funny. They just do not know who Bert is, you know. <laughs> but then you show them, uh, uh, you know, uh, the image from like Smoking the Bandit. They're like, oh, I think I've seen that, you yeah. know. Yeah. How much, how much did the movie deviate from when you first wrote it to the finished product? Well, the, the original draft was not set in the South. The original draft, the, the story goes in the movie Bert's character gets invited to a film festival. Um, he thinks it's a prestigious film festival. I know you already know this, but this is for anybody who hasn't seen yeah, the film. Of course, yeah. He gets he gets invited to a prestigious film festival, but when he arrives, he realizes it's not prestigious at all. It's a little rinky-dink film festival that is being you know held in a bar. They're showing movies on a sheet, and it's just a bunch of film geeks calling it a film festival. And they invited him, and they were shocked that he showed up. You know, and he was embarrassed that he showed up. Right. So originally in the script, the film festival was in Philadelphia, and he then bails on the film festival and goes back to New York where he grew up uh, and then goes on a little journey of the, you know, the, the landmarks of his past. He goes to visit his childhood home. He goes to this, he goes there. When we ultimately shot it, um, we were scouting locations in all the different states that had tax incentives, and we were looking for places to shoot it where we could pretend it's New York and Philadelphia. And, you know, you can do that in Atlanta and you can do that in Detroit. and You can do that in a lot of different places. But the money um, came mostly from Tennessee. And the, the Tennessee financiers said, you don't have to shoot it here at all. You can shoot it wherever you want. But come and scout Tennessee because maybe you can, you know, with a little movie magic, turn Knoxville and Nashville into New York somehow. Yeah. So we went and scouted it. And I felt so in love with it, with Knoxville and with Nashville. And I thought to myself, instead of trying to change the town to suit the script and pretend it's New York. What if we change the script to suit, to, to suit the town and embrace that he's going to a film festival in Nashville yeah. and he drives back home to where he's from in Knoxville. And as soon as we did that, you know, this is, you know, on, when you're making movies, you kind of, you have to hope for happy accidents from time to time. <laughs> sometimes they happen. Sometimes they don't. This turned out to be the happiest accident because once because we almost didn't even scout Tennessee. But once we decided to embrace Tennessee, suddenly the whole mood of the movie changed. The whole tone, the whole style, everything changed. And we, once we embraced the, uh, the South, and by the way, Bert's a Southern boy, so it made much more sense anyway. Yeah, yeah. And so it, it, it was the, that was the big change that was made, and it was the best change we could have ever made. Um, it, it's so rare that a film has me dabbing at my eyes and, and it gets me really emotional. Uh, every time I watch this, it, it does the same to me. But it, it, it's, how do you craft something together that you've got me sat here, I'm crying one minute, I'm laughing another, I'm like, it just warms my heart in other parts. It's It must be a fine line that you walk putting something together like this without going too far either way. Well, yes, that's something that, you know, was very important to me. I didn't want it to be corny. I didn't want it to be too on the, you know, on the nose, hit you too much over the head. I wanted it to be emotional. Hmm. I wanted it to be impactful. I wanted it to be funny as well. Um, but I, you know, I wanted it to just basically mostly feel real. And I felt that, you know, first of all, Bert completely embraced allowing himself to be vulnerable in the movie. And that was the key. You know, Bert yeah, embracing yeah. his age, embracing the fact that at one time, not only was he famous, but he was virile, he was masculine, he was powerful, and now he's old, yeah. and he's weak, and he's, he's vulnerable. Once he embraced showing that, the, the uh, emotional component just was inherent it came along with him because to me that's impactful you know here bert was the most to me uh shining example of the masculine american male mm -hmm. you know yeah, just this yeah. virile macho man you know you look at him in that canoe in 
in deliverance oh, with gosh, that sleeveless, yeah. sleeveless, uh, you know, wetsuit on. He just is so cool and so powerful. And then you see him today, or what did you know when we shot it? Hmm. And he, you know, that you know, the youth is fleeting, and that's what the movie's about: is that it goes by so fast, and before you know it, it's gone. And you're and 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 if you if this can happen, you know, if this can happen to Burt Reynolds, you know, this happens to everybody. Yeah. Uh, and uh, that to me is where hopefully the emotion came from. Burt's and Burt also is just naturally so funny. He brought out so much humor. <laughs> Everything he does is funny, you know? So uh, it, it, I really, I really, you know, I, I had hoped that, you know, we could capture some emotion, but really I, I defer entirely to Bert's ability to deliver that uh, as to why it might work, yeah. you know? I mean, what an absolutely amazing thing, not only for you, you know, as this huge fan that, became friends with him spent all this time with him but that you forever left this out there for everybody to watch from now on i mean that is that's just incredible thank you thank you and i will tell you you know um this is very sad that bert passed and and yeah. what some people may not know is that prior to him dying he was supposed to have a big role in quentin tarantino's new film once yeah. upon a time in hollywood and he got cast in that film because of my film and quentin told me that personally oh. Uh, Quentin told, I was at a dinner, uh, uh, I had heard that from Bert yeah. and, 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 um, which was a fabulous to hear, but also I had wondered if Bert was just saying that to be nice to me. Right. Mm -hmm. But I was at a dinner of directors and Quentin was there and Quentin came over to me. I, I knew I wanted to talk to him about Bert, but before I had a chance to go over to him, he came over to me and he said how much he loved the film. And he said he watched it twice and it was extremely flattering because I'm such a fan of his obviously. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And he said, he said that he, um, was a, a huge fan of Bert's and, and, but had been advised that maybe he shouldn't cast Bert because Bert might be too old to be able to pull off what he needed. But then he said he saw Bert doing press for my film and that he was funny and he was on and he was great. <laughs> and then he requested a copy of the film and he loved it and they watched it twice. And he said, I have to cast Bert. Bert's still got it. And so he cast Bert and Bert was so excited. And Bert and Quentin both told me this story separate from one another. So Bert told me this with such childlike innocence. It was so moving to me. He said, so there I, I, they flew me to L.A. for the table reading. And... Um, and I walk in and there's Brad Pitt and there's Leonardo DiCaprio and there's Al Pacino and there's <laughs> Kurt Russell. And they're all standing up applauding me when I walk in the room. Oh. I said, because you're Burt fucking Reynolds, man. Of course they're <laughs> applauding you. And he was so happy that, that uh, Al Pacino came up to him and said, how come we've never done this before? He was so moved. Yeah. And Quentin went on and on to everybody about the movie uh, that uh, once, uh, you know, about my film, you know, uh, uh, last movie star, and he was acting out scenes of what Bert did for everybody. And, and Bert was so giddy. And, and again, Quentin confirmed the exact story to me that Bert had said about all that. And, uh, and Bert said to me, he said, you know, I haven't felt this relevant since the seventies. Wow. And so the, the, it's so sad that he didn't get to be in that movie, but if I can take one little bit of solace in all of it, it's that he went out feeling good. Yeah. And, and I feel good about that. You know? uh, yeah. And so you should. And so you should. And it's great as well. I love that as well as everything that you've left us with the last movie star, the, the stories that you've told here tonight, the stories that you've told in other interviews, you will have your own bank of stories, personal stories that shouldn't be shared that between you and Bert as well. And it's good that you should have them that you can yeah, take with you yeah, and that you yeah. can remember, you know, from, from here on in. Definitely. Yeah. Well, Adam, I don't want to take up any more of your time. Um, it's It's been so good to chat with you. I could chat for hours about each of these individual <laughs> films. I really could. And like I, Anytime. I said at the beginning, I would love you back on, let's say sometime next year. Let's move on to another three because your bank of films is is so good and again i'm not just saying that because you're on the show i really do love you as a filmmaker and as a writer as well um so it, it would be great to have you back on on the show and i implore everybody uh to not only to go and watch the films that we talked about today but go through adam's imdb and, and pick out any you're not going to be disappointed 
There's a couple I would advise against. I will say there's a <laughs> stick with these first. Uh, there's a couple. Of, there's a couple down there. I, I would say, uh, you know, you can skip. <laughs> <laughs> well, for, for the sake of the edit, Adam, I'll, I'll say goodbye. And it's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you. Thank you again for coming on the show. Thank you, man. This has been a blast. I appreciate it. And I look forward to talking to you again next year. All right. Thanks. Adam. Bye bye. Take care. Bye. And the alarm bell, as always, brings to an end another interview show. What a great time again with Adam. Like I said at the beginning of this, I do love these interview shows so much. Getting to talk to people uh, whose work I love and admired for so long. And I'm sure you all enjoyed it just as much too. Has that tempted you to go out and watch Psycho Cop Returns? Hopefully. Hopefully it does. You should watch all of them. And again my favorite the last movie star what a film what a film please 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 if you haven't watched it go and watch it as soon as possible uh, you won't regret it give us a tweet let me know tagging adam as well when you've watched the last movie star or if you've already watched it let us know what you think about it too there's a few ways you can do that you can go to our website 60 minuteswith.co.uk there's a contact us form on there or you can email us direct, which is contact at 60minuteswith.co.uk. We have a Reddit community, 60 Minutes With Podcast, and we welcome all feedback and questions, comments, rants, complaints, whatever you'd like to do on our Reddit community for each show. We're on Twitter and Instagram. Both of those are at 60 Minutes With. All sorts of stuff happening across all of the social media platforms that we do. So that's it. It's the end of another show. We're back again very soon. We've got quite a lot of shows backed up. We're backed up with podcasts. We should see a doctor probably. Uh, so yeah, keep uh, keep your eye on our feed because there's a lot of shows coming at you very, very soon. Right, that's it for this one. Thank you for listening and we will be back again very soon. <laughs>